And there are some studies that say over 70% of employees will quit companies if they make them return to the office. Let's see where this goes. This could be really interesting. I don't remember whether the principal said this directly. We don't take new teachers. Get some experience and get your master's degree and then come back. It's unfortunate that Amazon gets a pat on the back for it, uh, when the reality is those jobs are paying two to three times that rate. We tried to talk to the management a lot during the first strike, but the thing is that we couldn't get any reply. We decided that if they don't reply us, we can do the same thing. We can again block the warehouse. And the life expectancy of the average correction officers um, 59. You have assaults. Other inmates assault. Other inmates staff get assaulted. And some of these assaults can be very heinous. The ability of all parts of the union to advance racial equity. Mm -hmm. Inclusion. So, so important. Mm -hmm. That people are valued, their voices are heard, and their voices are respected. So when I think about right, that more perfect union, to me, those avenues they resonate with that. There's always a need. Uh, somebody's going to need some, uh, something. So association is, is not going to be obsolete after five years or ten years. We won't be here for sure, but somebody else is going to be here. Because that was the whole establishment wing of the Democrats. That was their whole line. If we do Medicare for all, then you'll lose your leverage as a union and people won't pay the dues no more or whatever, which is like insane bullshit. <laughs> Welcome to the Labour Radio Podcast Weekly, our roundup of highlights from some of the more than 100 shows that make up the Labour Radio Podcast Network. Check them out at labourradionetwork.org. We've got eight different excerpts to share with you this week, some from shows that are new to the network and others that will be more familiar to regular listeners. We're going to begin with the Million Dollar Organiser Podcast where host Bob Odie offers some thoughts on the global employment crisis. Next, we'll introduce you to the Speaking of Work podcast from the Iowa Labour History Society. In this episode, we learn about the Keokuk Senior High School, site of an illegal strike in 1970, that changed the trajectory of education in all of Iowa through the voices of teachers themselves. Randy Corrigan from the Teamsters Union joins Chris LaGrange on Ucom Live to discuss organising the world's most evil corporation. That's Amazon, by the way. From one colossal warehouse to another, we then cross the Atlantic and go to the Fair Work podcast. Hear from delivery drivers who participated in a recent wildcat strike against Gorillaz Corporation in Berlin. On Council 4 Unplugged, that's the podcast of Ask Me Council 4 in Connecticut, we learn about a new project that's focused on addressing some of the mental health challenges faced by workers in correctional facilities. Denise Berkeley joins the latest episode of Union Strong to discuss the New York State AFL-CIO's Social Justice Task Force. Then journey a bit further north to Montreal, where this month's episode of Labour Radio focused on the history and legacy of the Greek Workers' Association of Quebec. And finally, the Art and Labour crew raised concerns about the United Federation of Teachers' position on the New York Health Act. This is Patrick Dixon with the Labour Radio Podcast Weekly. Here's this week's show. 
It's the Million Dollar Organizer Show, tips for professional union organizers. Win more campaigns, balance work and family, and leave the competition in the dust. Now here's your host, Bob Odie. Hello, union organizers and future union organizers. This is podcast episode number 42. We're so glad you found us. Welcome. There's an employment crisis taking place right now, and it's global. No, it's not the one we're hearing so much about in the news. The fast food workers, the customer service workers, security personnel, etc. No, we're talking about middle management. Information technology positions. Employees were asked to work from home during the pandemic, and what these employees discovered was a much more enjoyable work and family life experience. Us parents were able to spend more time with our kids. Commuting time is all but eliminated. And that's half the headache in having a job. There's cost savings, too. Fuel, insurance, wear and tear on vehicles, dry cleaning, work clothes, meals at restaurants. There's less illness and less sick days being utilized. Many people are reporting that they have not had a cold in the last 16 months, and it's unusual for some of us. Of course, companies want employees to return to the office, as you can imagine. And there are some studies that say over 70% of employees will quit companies if they make them return to the office. Let's see where this goes. This could be really interesting. The bipartisan infrastructure plan in Washington looks like it's taking shape. And this could create a lot of union jobs all across the U.S. Have you written to your representative yet? Please do support this effort because there's a lot on the line. I wrote my representative this last week, and you can send an email, make a phone call, or even better, write a letter to your representative in Congress and the Senate. Sometimes these folks need a little push to do the right thing. They're preoccupied with procedural matters and their own little pet projects. It's time working families get what we want. I remember hearing that nothing has more impact on these representatives than a handwritten letter on yellow-lined paper. If you're ever going to write a letter, that's the way to do it. Of course, this takes a little more effort, but now's the perfect time to do it. And speaking of writing letters, do you know someone who's ill or grieving or dealing with a loss of some kind or just depressed? People need to know they're not alone. There's been a lot of isolation that's come out of this. Take care of yourself and let's take care of those around us. A few words of encouragement scribbled in a greeting card might make all the difference. I can think of a few people right now that might need some encouragement. How about you? It can be a friend or a neighbor, a union member, a co-worker. Please consider taking the time to acknowledge someone this week. I challenge you to do this. People often fake being okay, but they give clues. Let's respond in a kind way, in a charitable way, and it'll come back to us. We know that. Thanks for listening. We hope that you'll subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts or anywhere you listen to podcasts. Give us a five-star review and let us know what you'd like to hear the Million Dollar Organizer talk about. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Union Organizer. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next time. From the people who you knew and worked with, what what kind of things did they talk about when they talked when they when they thought about the possibility of a strike? 
It had always been that the school board just determined what we would be paid. And we thought that we should have some voice in it. And that's why we struck. That's me, John McCurley, talking with the late Billy Peters Anderson in 2014. At the time, she had just turned 92. I'd come to see her where she was living with her husband, Milo Anderson, in the little town of Ursa, Illinois. I'd come to talk about something that had happened almost 45 years earlier, way back in 1970, when she was Billy Peters, an almost 50-year-old elementary school teacher in Keokuk, Iowa, a small city on the Mississippi River, right where Iowa, Missouri, and Illinois meet. In 1970, she'd been one of four people jailed for leading the first strike of Iowa teachers since World War II. Although the Keokuk teacher strike wasn't the only strike by public employees in Iowa at the time, and, as we'll see, it wasn't even the only strike by school workers in Keokuk in 1970, it was arguably the most important. Like today, here in 2020, back in the late 60s and early 70s, teachers were striking in cities and states across the U.S. In Iowa, politicians and public employers were worried that what happened in Keokuk wouldn't stay in Keokuk. And, as it turns out, they were absolutely right. But none of that explains how I got to Ursa, Illinois, and to Billy Peters Anderson's kitchen table. For that, let's fast forward to just before my interview in 2014. In the fall of 2013, I was hired as the latest interviewer for something called the Iowa Labor History Oral Project, or ILHOP for short. In the 1970s, the folks who ran ILHOP were worried about losing the voices of people who had been union activists back in the 1930s and even earlier. So they understandably avoided spending their time recording interviews with people who were engaged in the struggles going on all around them at the time. Over the next 40 years, a few of those interviews were done, and we're going to listen to some of them in this series. But when I went to work for the project, the time really had come to finish that work, to go back to interview people like Billy Peters Anderson, who had been involved in creating the Iowa that I, and a whole generation, had come to know. But back then, it was still very much a historical project. Most Iowans didn't know anything at all about the Keokuk teacher strike or the other public sector strikes of the 1960s and 1970s. This was true even though the strikes had helped to produce a 1974 law that required public employers to abide by legally binding union contracts. That law, also little known to most Iowans, had made it possible for the state's public sector workers to improve their lives, and really, thereby, the lives of all Iowans, over the next 40 years. Even for many teachers and other public sector union members, the sense was, look at the great things we've achieved, but it's so good that that fight is in the past. Thank goodness we don't have to go through things like that right now. When I graduated from the university in 1959, I was told at that time that the Keokuk School District was one of the top school districts to teach in, in the state of Iowa, because of how well they treated their teachers, how well they paid their teachers, the chance for advancement, and they encouraged you going back to school, and in some cases even paid uh, money for, uh, to you to help you on those advanced degrees. When I graduated from college, uh, which would have been 1965, I applied for a job in, in Keokuk. Uh, I wanted to teach there. It was a bigger town, you know, and, and uh, you know, I went and interviewed, and uh, uh, so I, I uh, and there was a, a, a dramatic uh, uh, salary differential between teaching uh, uh, 25 miles away in Cahoka and, you know, I, over the over the summer I got my master's degree, but I went from 
like uh, $5,200 to $9,500 or something like that in salary. Uh, plus, you know, they had some some benefits that uh, you know I didn't even know existed. You know, as a as a young teacher in uh, in this rural Missouri town. Those were the voices of some of the many Keokuk teachers I interviewed for this project. When they were hired in the 1950s and 1960s, in many ways they considered themselves very lucky to have landed a job in Keokuk. The city and its public schools were very much on the rise. Between the late 1940s and mid 1960s. Keokuk School District built new buildings like that high school I told you about and filled them with teachers. In fact, during those years, Keokuk's full-time teaching force almost doubled, growing from approximately 86 to 169. This for a small city of about 16,000 people. But Keokuk boosters didn't just want more teachers. They wanted highly educated and effective teachers, the kind that they believed attracted corporate investment from the small to medium-sized U.S. firms that still existed at the time and that made up the backbone of the city's economy. By 1970, almost half, that is 46%, of all Keokuk public school teachers had more than a bachelor's degree. That was the highest percentage in the state. That may not mean a lot to the non-Iowans, but we're talking about more than Des Moines or even Ames or Iowa City, where the state's two big public universities are located. So again, here in the late 1960s, in a little industrial city, often interstate, and without a public or even a private four-year college or university, there was one of, if not the, best public school system in Iowa. By the mid-1960s, Keokuk's school district also had something only a few other districts in the state had, a master contract. Then as now, teachers tend to work for districts on a year-to-year basis. They sign individual contracts that spell out things like hours and pay. As teachers have long found, however, these individual contracts made it easy for school administrators to discriminate against them in a number of ways. Master contracts, by comparison, allowed teachers to join together and negotiate as a group. This not only made it less likely that a district would be able to pay some teachers less for the same work, but also made it possible to use their collective influence to get a better deal for everyone. Maybe even allowed them to address things beyond pay and benefits that were expressions of teachers' dignity and level of control of the workplace, like curriculum, the what and how of teaching. Although, as we're going to see, even a master contract wasn't always a silver bullet, especially when districts weren't bound by the results of negotiations. Coming to you live from the UConn Media Studios in New York, it's UConn Live with Chris LeGreen. News, talk, sports, and workforce politics. The loudest, strongest, and most controversial labor news show on, in, and Chris around the Now here's your host, Chris LeGreen. While we're back here, we'll prepare for our very special guest. His name's uh, Randy Keegan, right? Corrigan. Corrigan. Corrigan, the organizing director for um, the Teamsters. And he's got this skinny on how to organize uh, the world's most evil corporation. And I think that you're going to win, Randy. I really do. If this is almost our campaign to lose, if we give up and we start infighting, do you agree? I, I agree 100%. This is, this is something that's very doable. Uh, and... and when we look back on our history and the workers' history and what they've been able to accomplish, uh, the more and more we peel back the layers and understand how that actually happened uh, to give us what we have today, 
the more we're inspired to make sure that we can carry that legacy on in the right way for a future, for a future workforce, a future workforce that, that doesn't look at $15 an hour as a, a warehouse job or a driving job. Uh, it's unfortunate that Amazon gets a pat on the back for it uh, when the reality is those jobs are paying two to three times that rate. Yeah, I got your back. Um, one stupid question before we bid you adieu. If I hung a sign in my door, because I'm an Amazon customer, and saying I support your right to join the Teamsters, is that, a, is that a strategy that's coming down the road? Is that something that you want me to do right away as a consumer? Do you want me to wait to get direction from you? Actually, uh, we already have door hangers that we're rolling out in certain metropolitan areas once the infrastructure is built out to be able to manage it. Uh, so you will actually be able to do that on your door at a certain time once the infrastructure is built out to be able to manage uh, that response once that contact uh. is made so that you can make that contact at your door, that driver can see what it is. And most importantly, we want that driver to know that you actually care about them. And awesome. we've actually, we canvas neighborhoods and have this discussion. We can see that a majority of people actually care about those people and the jobs in which they're performing and they're willing to help and they're willing to step up and they're willing to do the right thing. So send me your information. I'll make sure you get some of those door hangers. Randy, UCOM's got your back, buddy. All right. Thick or thin, dude. Good times and bad. We're going to help you. Thank you for joining us today, brother. Thank you for having us. Okay. All right. Okay. So remember, the only comment, crime that you commit is the crime of doing nothing. So speak up when injustice occurs. Listen, love your children and your community more than your guns because your guns will never love you back. I promise you. And thanks for stopping by, America, and the good people of Topeka, Kansas, win this strike. I got your back. I'm Chris LaGrange. This was UCOM Live, and we'll try this again in a few weeks. See you later. Okay. Bye. Gorillas operates a grocery service, offering to deliver supermarket goods to your door in 10 minutes. It takes the model of the dark kitchen used by platforms like Deliveroo, creating localized warehouses around the city, enabling the rapid rollout of consumer products. It's a company whose business model varies from that of many of the other companies that make up the gig economy. It employs workers directly, and many workers are paid hourly as they make deliveries around the city on company-provided bikes. In this sense, it does differ considerably from the model adopted by many other transnational platforms, which operate by seeking to outsource as many of the costs onto the workers themselves. For Zeynep, moving to Germany from Turkey to study, initially it seemed like a great opportunity. At first it was perfect to me, seriously, because as I was new in Germany, I was comparing everything with Turkey. And although, for example, um, I completed my bachelor's in Turkey, I mean, and I am a rider here as a part-time worker, I was earning much more than what I would earn back in my country. So it was a, I saw it like a very good opportunity as a, uh, to begin. And then it all happened. <laughs> Last month, Gorillas Riders in Berlin went on strike, blockading warehouses around the city and stoking international media coverage. The company, which in under a year of operating, has managed to achieve a market valuation of a billion US dollars 
finally started to come up against the collective will of its riders. I'm Robbie Warren, and this week on the Fair Work podcast, we are exploring the company Gorillas Technologies, one of the fastest growing startups in Europe. It's a company with massive plans for expansion and is growing at a breakneck speed. We'll hear from Zeynep and Yasha about their experiences of the strikes, as well as looking at what the rise of these companies says about the ways in which technologies are reshaping labour markets. On the 9th of June, as he came to the end of his shift, a guerrillas rider known as Santiago was approached by a member of management staff. According to accounts from the rider himself that circulated on social media, he was fired on the spot without explanation. Zeynep remembers finding out about the firing. Uh, we had several groups on WhatsApp, on Telegram, and uh, one of the workers uh, wrote this situation in one group. And then Yasha called me, for example, and told me that they fired somebody in Checkpoint Charlie Warehouse. And when I heard that, I just started to write all the groups, everybody that I can find while I was going to the warehouse. And when we met there, I saw a lot of people from different warehouses and we just found each other there in front of this warehouse. It was all organic and not planned at all. We just uh, had, a, we just had a small meeting with the workers there and we decided to block the warehouse because we somehow had to show our reaction to the management because in our friend's case, he didn't get any warning. As this situation happened without any reason, we knew that this situation can happen to any one of us. If we don't show our reaction, we can experience the very same thing. There was also um, no reason giving for the termination. It was within the probation. It was at the very end of the probation period, actually. He was five months in. Gorillas operates a six-month probationary period, within which it's much easier for riders to be fired. Or something. Along those lines, there was no reason given. We tried to talk to the management a lot during the first strike, I mean, but the thing is that we couldn't get any reply. And after a while, we made another meeting and we decided that if they don't reply us, if they didn't reply us, we can just go to another warehouse and we can do the same thing. We can again block the warehouse. And we talked to the management, we told them that if they uh, wouldn't reinstate our friend, we were going to block another warehouse. What followed was three days of strikes, as the workers moved around the city, picketing warehouses to contest the firing of their colleague, using various tactics to disrupt the company's operations. Yasha told me how the strikes were one of the first times that workers felt able to express themselves freely. Like, people were feeling more comfortable talking to each other in this kind of situation, um, or even if management was right, like even if the company's like top lawyer and like top managers were standing right next to them because they saw that the management cannot really do anything, cannot really control the situation anyway. We always say that the company cares about their image a lot. And I mean, you can see it, but if you watch the advertisements of the companies, they try to create this cool image. And when we first blocked the warehouse in Checkpoint Charlie, the warehouse level managers were against us. They were questioning our actions until they saw people taking videos of the situation. And then 
they started to they started to give us food or water this was the very basic example that the company cares about their image but not the riders not the workers thanks to oz zainab and yasha at fair work we're actively campaigning to improve the conditions for gig workers around the world and hold platforms to account you can find out more at fair.work Hello and welcome to Council 4 Unplugged. This is the podcast of our Council 4 APSME Union. We're headquartered in New Britain, Connecticut, and we are proud to represent more than 29,000 workers across the great state of Connecticut. And today we're going to be taking a look at an important effort to improve workers' health within the Connecticut prison system. So I'm pleased to introduce Sara Namazi, and Sara is an assistant professor of gerontology and health sciences at Springfield College. Uh, also with us is Correction Officer Colin Provost, who also serves as the president of AFSME Local 391, and Local 391 represents uh, correction officers and other frontline prison employees uh, throughout Northern Connecticut. And we also have with us another correction officer and AFSME Local 391 steward, San Suddeth. So we want to welcome you all. I also want to introduce Renee Hamill, my colleague at Council 4. Renee, how are you doing? I'm doing well. Glad to be here with all of you. Professional areas, and Stan Suttis was chosen as their team facilitator. We've been introduced here already. The original question of what do we hope to see come of it, we hope to see this salute to the identified root causes of the uh, stressors that they see on a daily basis inside the institutions from the many different professions that we represent. Yeah, it seems like a really great partnership. Stan, you're on the front lines of public safety working in a prison. It's a tough and dangerous job. We'd like to hear from you how you see this project helping you and your coworkers in the Correctional Institute. I think one of the things that they would have to understand that, again, the life expectancy of the average correction officer is um, 59. They would have to understand that what we go through far as, again, trauma, like when I talked about it before, our trauma, when you, again, when you talk about you have assaults, other inmates assault, other MH staff get assaulted, and some of these assaults can be very heinous. I've seen one assault where another inmate took a hot pot and uh, pretty much uh, you swung it around and hit the inmate on top of the head, which caused, you know, concussion, bleeding, and everything else. And the average person isn't used to that. And again, you have to understand that, like I said before, I end up having to work back in that same area. So again, what may be normal isn't normal. We tend to normalize a lot of things. So when you talk about accumulative stress that we go through every day, that hypervigilance that we experience every day from the job that we take home, just because you take off the uniform doesn't mean that that it doesn't mean that everything stops. When you're in your car, when you're in your neighborhood, when you're in your re- in the restaurant, you know these are those things that you have to be aware of. So again. When you're talking about PTSD, it is important to understand, again, that we experience it. And if you, and the studies also show that it's, it also, we also experience just as much as a, a veteran that served in Iraq and Afghanistan. It actually 
if you think about it, it's more. And I can speak personally being a vet, a veteran and serving in Afghanistan and Iraq. I had the experience of being a correction officer and a military veteran. So I can say that, yes, I definitely did experience things over there. But when you talk about the accumulative stress and what we deal day in and day out, once those doors slam and you don't know what your day is going to turn into, you don't know when you're responding to that code, what what you're running into. So to um, have a bill that includes a correctional staff or correctional officers or how you want to look at anyone that pretty much works in the agency, I think that it is important to include us in that. Thanks for listening to our Council 4 Unplugged podcast. You can find us on all major social platforms by searching for Council 4 AFSCME. Our website is council4.org. My name is Larry Dorman, and you've been unplugged. For the New York State AFL-CIO, I'm Darcy Wells, and this is Union Strong. One year ago, the New York State AFL-CIO created a social justice task force to serve as a forum for frank and honest dialogue and, more importantly, a vehicle for real and meaningful change to make our society and our movement more equitable and just for New Yorkers of color. Today, I'm honored to have as a guest on our podcast a member of the task force, CSEA Executive Vice President Denise Berkeley. You've done a lot of work in the struggle for social, racial, and economic justice already, and there's much more to do. So when we talk to other union members, union leaders, community members, how do you define what that struggle is? It's more when I look at it and when I've talked with members and community activists, it's like wanting us to have a more perfect union. It's defining how what our union should be and what it should look like, meaning creating a brave space where members can come in and talk. Mm-hmm. have honest dialogue, like we've talked about with the New York State AFL-CIO mm-hmm. task force, about having diversity, that we want to increase racial diversity within our unions. Talk about justice, to strengthen the ability of all parts of the union to advance racial equity. Mm-hmm. Inclusion, so important, mm-hmm. that people are valued, their voices are heard, and their voices are respected. So when I think about that more perfect union, to me, those avenues, they resonate with that. Can you talk to me a little bit about what CSEA specifically is doing in terms of social justice and racial equity? CSEA has been really on a positive level for many years in reference to. And CSEA, we do one, we have a program called Elite Program, which is a leadership program. And we have, we call it honor, Honoring Diversity. Many peoples, many cultures, one union. We do a program in reference to racial equity under this terminology. So we do that with all of our leaders. We have a minority advisory group that advises the president, President Mary Sullivan, on what areas we should be addressing Mm -hmm. in reference to racial equity. We also have a human rights committee that deals with the hiring in terms of people of color within the union, Mm -hmm. and also studies and watch our hiring patterns, how we can be more inclusive. Right. So what about in your role as chairman of AFSCME's Racial Equity Committee? What are some of the issues you've addressed there? We want conversations to be ongoing. We want among members and board members to have those discussions to help the affiliates and other AFSCME affiliates how to bring this even in contract language, Mm -hmm. how to have those discussions. Um, support from the staff, 
in reference to racial equity, and formal and informal conversations, that brave space, that safe space, one-on-one conversations. What our challenges are, because we're trying to look at the positive and what the challenges are, how to have a free speech, the way the culture is now. Can we have those honest dialogues without commotion and everything going on in the room? And even if I may not understand what's taking place, we can have those dialogues. It's more important to have those brave, safe spaces that we can have that. And the union movement, to me, is one of the best avenues that we can do that. I know on our task force was the diversity in within union leadership. Where are we with that and trying to change that? It sounds like at CSEA you're doing quite well. We, we're doing quite well with that. In fact, I was the first statewide officer, African-American person. And now we have a second one who's a statewide officer. And all the unions are looking at how do we diversify leadership? How do we bring younger leaders and people of color mm-hmm. in the fold of leadership? I think it's crucial on all levels in all unions. So that dialogue is happening right now. So as part of that, we're involved with training and and trying to, and getting younger people involved, I would imagine, too, and that trust of you do want to come up through the ranks, right? You are going to be heard. You will have this platform. Is that part of it, trying to bring people in and convince them of that and let them know those opportunities exist? That's a major part of it, mentoring, speaking, encouraging, all of those areas we're trying to do. Because it's so important for the future, even the labor movement. And for the future, we got to have everybody at the table. And you need to hear the, all of those voices represented. My final question really for you is just, are you hopeful that, that we're on a, a path of change? Are you yes. hopeful for the future? Yes, I'm very hopeful. Because it's, I tell you, it's a more perfect union. This is the type of union that we envision. So we look back, I'm, I'm always a visionary. So I'm going to say, we're going to look at, we're, gonna, we're in 2021, I'm talking about 20. 41, that what type of union we're going to have. And we are preparing the way now. And if we have those safe spaces, those safe dialogues, honest dialogues, bringing everybody in the table, we will be a more perfect union. And I'm looking at now 2041. (laughs) That's awesome. Very good. Denise Berkeley, the executive vice president of CSEA, thank you for being our guest on the Union Strong podcast. We appreciate it. It was an honor. And we appreciate you. Thank you. There, 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 is, there is this thing. Do you realize what is what is what is? What? There is this thing. Do you realize consciousness is affected? There, there, there is this. There is this thing on. There is this thing going on. Do you realize our consciousness is affected? There is this thing going on. What is called the news are brought to you live. And you're listening to this month's edition of Labor Radio here on CKUT 90.3 FM. This is your one of your co-hosts, Mustafa Henaway. And I'm Stefan Doucette. So glad to have you listening. Don't forget to check out uh, our Facebook page. You can re-listen to the episode on Mixcloud. And we've also also recently joined the uh, radio, uh, excuse me, the Labor Radio Podcast Network. So check them out. You can find lots of other um, labor uh, radio shows.
So we're at the uh, Greek Workers Association and we're lucky to be joined by two members of the board of the Greek Workers Association. This year we celebrate tw- uh, 50 years of existence of the association. I am member of the association from the beginning of 72. That means 49 years. I remember a guy coming in not to protect test for something, but he was looking for an easier job because he was working like 80 hours a week <laughs> and he, he was exhausted and he could not stand it anymore. Can you imagine? These people, you know, they, they were not uh, speaking the language and they, they didn't have nowhere to, to turn. They had to pay uh, at the beginning, at that time, uh, they were the, like the um, travel agencies. <laughs> they used to help you and they charge, okay? So we started this association and we helped thousands and thousands of people who didn't speak the language, didn't know their rights, uh, at uh, the work, uh, the school, the housing, whatever, the health system. Can you talk a little bit about um, what it means to the both of you that the association is still here 50 years later, that it's still true to its mission of um, helping immigrants um, and of uh, pushing for progressive change here and in Greece? We never should should forget is that uh, the needs, whether they're always there, there's always a need, uh, somebody's going to need some, uh, something. So association is, is not going to be obsolete after five years or ten years. For sure there's going to be a need for the association to be around. People yeah, yeah people, people, people change. We won't be here for sure, but somebody else is going to be here. You know, somebody new but with the same problems and uh, who, want, who would want to give... Uh, a resolution to, 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 to its problems. This has been uh, your co-host, Mustafa Hanaway. Uh, it's been quite the episode uh, and really inspiring uh, to see an organization like the Greek Workers Center that's been around for 50 years, which is rare in our social movements uh, and the labor movement to see organizations uh, last that long and still remain relevant and uh, a critical voice in, in, the, in the labor movement, but also in the community. So thanks everyone for joining us this month and we'll see you next month for another show. That's it for Labor Radio this month. Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of Art and Labor. We are the podcast dedicated to the ongoing struggle to survive as an art and or cultural worker. I'm OK Fox, um, joined by my co-host Darcy Wilder and Sarah Crow, and we are bringing back returning champion Joey De Jesus. Last night, there were several electeds who were doing a debrief of the bills that didn't pass. And it was just so shocking to hear Jabari Brisport, mm-hmm. a state senator, who was on the DSA slate. It was so disheartening to hear him speak about how there are more co-sponsors for the New York Health Act which is a piece of legislation that would extend Medicare for all across New York State. There are more legislators co-sponsoring the bill than needed 
to pass the bill across the both bodies of the house, both houses. I really don't understand what is the political like will that is preventing them from passing legislation if it's not the the it's interesting. Veto. So Jabari mentioned UFT, which is United Teachers Federation. Yeah, apparently UFT came out against the passage of the New York Health Act and Jabari ended up swaying this rep to who admitted that they personally agreed but could not agree on behalf of the organization. It's weird. I think people are, I think that there's a lot of uh, lobbying happening in Albany. I think there's that like big pharma and these private insurance companies are doing everything in their power to hold on to everything that, to hold on to the power that they have. And maybe does UFT just think they're, are they buying the fucking Kool-Aid that they won't have leverage if, because that was the whole establishment wing of the Democrats. That was their whole line. If we do Medicare for all, then you'll lose your leverage as a union and people won't pay the dues no more or whatever, which is like insane bullshit. (laughs) To be honest, I don't know what mental gymnastics are occurring. I don't know if, if Joey, if you want to talk about some of the ways having a rep can, a, a rep who's like favorable towards labor and tenants. You're, you're talking to me once about yeah. community group funding and stuff like that. Yeah, I'm realizing that offices, legislative offices put in requests for funds, mm-hmm. you know, for services that their community needs. And for me, as you know, as I can very readily think up the language for a a request for funds because tenant unions are essential and important and especially in the mutual aid network needs to we need that (laughs) we need it it needs to be reinforced and we need to flesh it out truly yeah Um, and for it to, to for it to be sustainable we need to make sure that people are getting paid for their labor we need to make sure that people are, that this is not all just local philanthropy. Or, right. or, you know, it's, yes, it's great the, the, that we're able to generate funds from our community, but there's beauty to it, but there's a lot of precarity to it. And I think it's important for us to have a sustainable infrastructure. Now, we all have to compete for grants, the same grants, Right. And, and yeah. instead, it's like scarcity model. But you know, for arts organizers, it's, oh, you got you, oh, the, I'm applying for the lower Manhattan Community Council and the this and the that. The, and as are you know, other organizations and y'all coordinate to help each other to succeed, but we all in the back of our minds know we're all in competition with each other. This is, so that's not sustainable. It's really unimaginable all the ways in which a legislator can create new ways of being together within community love to everybody i'm gonna stop the recording but um let's have fun out there regardless (laughs) that brings us to the end of our latest round of highlights this is just a slice of the pie though and if you'd like a second or even a third portion There's plenty more in the network refrigerator at labourradionetwork.org. 
You can also find them by using the hashtag LabourRadioPod on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. Labour Radio Podcast Weekly was edited this week by Mel Smith, Chris Bang at Drowns, Chris Garlock and myself. Produced also by Chris Garlock and promoted on social media by Harold Phillips. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Labour Radio Net. Find out more on on our, find out more on our website at labourradionetwork.org. The Labour Radio Podcast Weekly. This was Patrick Dixon. Hope to see you next time. Bye bye. <laughs>